This is the Marsh and Matt Show with Marshall Kellner and Matt Gallivan. Welcome to this week's edition of the Marsh and Matt Show. I'm Marshall Kellner, Matt Gallivan, along with you in a second. We have a guest this week. His name is Mike Wabshaw. He's our first return guest, and we caught up with him earlier this week. It was an excellent conversation on all things Vikings, the state of the team, what uh, we can expect going forward, and uh, and much, much more. And we hope you enjoy that conversation. Here it is, earlier this week, with Mike Wabshaw. Welcome to this week's edition of the Marsh and Matt Show. Marshall Kellner and Matt Gallivan along with you. And we are pleased to be joined once again by Mike Wabshaw, our first uh, repeat guest on the Marsh and Matt Show. So, uh, Bobby. I know that. Yes. Repeat. Okay. Yes. And, uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a very uh, nice honor for you. Well-deserved. He's uh, Wabi is from Vikings uh, territory and purple PTSD. That's where you can catch his work and you can catch him on Twitter at Wabi where uh, he tweets about the Minnesota Vikings as well. Thank you for uh, coming back. You bet guys. Thanks for having me. Listen, I've hosted shows and podcasts, so I know what it means to have a repeat guest. That's a good sign. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. It's not lost on me. So fun to join you guys. Absolutely. Uh, feelings mutual. And uh, we had to have you back uh, this week because there's just a lot to talk about uh, Vikings wise uh, with the past couple of games. Uh, it's it's kind of been like this all year you feel like the sky's falling then they beat the green bay packers and you feel like uh ain't no stopping us now and then they go to san francisco and get beat and kind of a frustrating game but a game that uh was a little bit anticipated at least from my standpoint in that you don't want to play san francisco when your entire d-line is out (laughs) uh it was it was like the least it was the team i least wanted to play when uh when the injury situation was as it was but uh what were your thoughts on that on that san francisco game first time we've seen them since the postseason a couple of years ago yeah yeah i just for some reason you just get gut feelings um or or you watch games and you have more than a gut feeling i guess but on just do you match up well with this team or not you know and and i I know the game was close and the vikings could have won the game but I just don't think San Francisco is a good matchup for the Vikings in general. And I I don't know, I can't quite put my finger totally on it, but like there's a situation I could unfold for you where a team with a better record than the Niners, I would be like, if I'm the Vikings, I'd rather play that team. Like if I was the Vikings, I'd rather play the Cowboys than the Niners, even though the Cowboys have a better record because I just think the Niners are a bad matchup for them. Um, so with all that being said, um, the Vikings though are right in the thick of it. I mean, they've had some losses that would probably really frustrate some Vikings fans. They've had some wins that probably really, um, are drawing some optimism from Vikings fans. And the truth is somewhere in between those two extremes. That's where the Vikings are. They're a 500 team. They're right in the thick of the also Rams in the NFC. I mean, they're right there. Um, it will not surprise me if they make the playoffs, And I think we need a scale tipping event to tell us what's going to happen. And what I mean by that is, and you guys probably watch enough of the combine in years gone by. One of, one of my favorite things that Mike Mayock always said was with the 40 yard dash, he's like, if a fast guy runs fast 
or if a slow guy runs slow, those are not stories. It's when the opposite happens that it becomes a story. If a fast guy runs a slow time, that's a story. If a slow guy runs a fast time, that's a story. So for me, for the Vikings, the rest of the way, there's like the scale tipping event is like, if they lose to the lions, then I'm going to be like, whoop, that shouldn't have happened. Right. But then uh, pick a tough game for them on the schedule coming up uh, at Lambeau. If they win that game, I'm going to be like, whoop, might have something here. Right. So we're still, I think we're still waiting for that moment to really find out what the Vikings fate is. I don't know what it is yet. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. And when we thought, I mean, beating the Packers, they are so tough to beat. Um, even with even with all their injuries and the Vikings had to catch a few breaks in that game, but they played really well uh, for the most part in that game and and in a game they they really had to have, especially considering San Francisco. Uh, what was next? What one thing I want to I want to touch on. And uh, speaking of fast guys, Kane Wongu, um, he's going to be featured a little more this week, and we can get to him in a minute. But the when you when you said that it made me think of the running. Game. And the running game, for whatever reason, just has not been as dominant, not been as explosive consistently this year. And uh, Rick Dennison, we don't know really how much he's involved. I mean, he had the, the stuff with the vaccination, so he's kind of doing things virtually. Um, and he was the run game coordinator, and he was, he was really good the past couple of years. Their, their run game was one of the best in the league. Uh, you watch, you watch the games, you watch the film. Uh, what, what have you seen from this, this run game that's caused it to be a li- just a little bit more inconsistent, even with Dalvin healthy now for most of the year? Yeah, something's missing. Maybe you're right, Marshall. Maybe it's has something to do with Rick Dennison. Um, you might be onto something with that, but something is not quite there, I guess. You know, before you sort of mentioned Rick Dennison, I guess I hadn't thought of that, guys. But, um, you know, there was, I don't think Brad Childress invented this saying, but he's the first person I knew who said it. Uh, His deal was, you know, mass kicks ass. That's what he always said. You know, and I don't, I look at the Vikings offensive line and I mean, those guys are big guys. I'm I'm not suggesting they're not big guys, but when I look at the Vikings offensive line, I look at a group that's athletic, that can move. Uh, and, and that's by design uh, outside zone running scheme, Dalvin cook, one cut runner, all that all, all makes sense. But I just, when it comes down to it and push comes to shove and it's four minute offense, or it's the beginning of the game, you want to establish the run. I don't know that the Vikings are an offensive line that can just kick your ass and move you out of the way. And so I'm not calling those guys out. I think they've played well in stretches. In fact, I've seen a lot of really good nuggets and notes from PFF on Ezra Cleveland. I think we all know Brian O'Neill is a stud. Um, But I just think there's something missing from a, 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 a physical grinding, just kick your ass mentality, not mentality, but ability uh, from that group. And I think that could be what's holding them back. And this is me theorizing more, more than anything. Um, I don't think they're that far away though. And I, I always think if you could choose, if you, if you had to pick your offensive line, they can be really good pass protectors. And then you got to figure out a way to make it work in the run game, or you can be really good in the running game and you got to figure out how to make it work with pass protection. I'd rather be really good at pass protection and lean on my running back to make it work in the running game. So I think they're in an okay spot, 
but you're right. It just doesn't seem like it's the same as it was in years past. Wabi, I think the other most frustrating thing for Vikings fans this year, um, especially in the Vikings Twitterverse, uh, the end of half, end of game defense. Yeah. I, I mean, it just is so, you know, everyone has lots of opinions about Zimmer and the job he's doing and should he remain the coach and all this and that, but no one can question that he's a great defensive mind, but what the heck is going on at the end of halves and at the end of games with the defense? I just, I, Zim's my guy. I mean, I love, I love him. And I agree with what you said, Matt, um, you know, and, and I want to, I want to be a little careful on this because again, I can't, you know, I don't have a notebook full of plays written down that I can be like, and on this play in this situation, they should have done this differently. I just feel like there have been some clock management and some play calls that they'd like to have back, you know, and I don't think it's all on the players uh, in those situations when, when it's consistent like this, almost week after week struggles in the last two minutes of games. I mean, that's you, if you're a coach, you have to look at yourself yourselves it's not just Zimmer it's it's everyone and just be like what can we do differently and 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 I'm, it's really perplexing to me because I I was you know I was there I was in the building I was at every practice with with Zim you know up through uh almost all of 2019 and he and I would have chats about like situations let's let you know think of situations that we can put the team in and practice them so like he's conscious of it he knows it's important and they practice it um, so maybe, maybe there is a little bit of execution that needs to get better, but I really think they got to look at it from a strategy and a time management perspective. It's totally killing them. It's killing them in, in terms of momentum. It's killing them on the scoreboard, you know, and it's too bad because I think for the, for the majority of the time, they're pretty buttoned up and pretty, uh, well-disciplined and schematically they're, I mean, they're really good schematically. And, you don't have to believe me. Uh, you can listen to Aaron Rodgers talk about it. I don't know if you guys heard Aaron Rodgers on the Pat McAfee show a couple of weeks ago when he was talking yep. about, I mean, he laid it out beautifully. He's like, yeah. you know, and, and, and Rodgers doesn't do that if he doesn't believe it. I mean, you know, he doesn't gush about everyone. I've never heard him gush about Matt Nagy. I've never heard him gush <laughs> about, you know, Pete Carroll. Like he was gushing about Zimmer and he was, he was literally explaining to you, intricacies of the pressures that zim dials up and how good they are and so if you're if some of your listeners haven't heard that i encourage them to find that episode of the pat mcafee show where aaron Rodgers is um talking about the the vikings game so i don't think it's a schematic thing um i think it's a time on task and an execution thing yeah i, I what i just found so interesting is at the end of the game there i know you're you know within the five yards of the end zone but I feel like the old Zimmer would have kicked the field goal there um, and trusted his defense to be able to hold him. Um, but instead he went for it. And, you know, the, a lot of us call for him to be more aggressive, which is fine, but yeah. it, it, there's just something there that to me, it sort of was a sign where it's like, does Zimmer not even trust his defense to be able to hold folks at the end of the game now? Uh, it just, that was a little bit of a warning. sign. Yeah. I can hear that a little bit. You had a really high scoring game. So maybe he was, you know, not trying to force a square peg in a round hole. I, I listen, I, I think 
NFL coaches in general don't go for it enough on fourth down and don't go for two enough. And that's not like me, a video game player. Like I don't play video games anymore. I wish I had time to. That's not like me being like a video game player and just never punting. I really think the culture in the NFL among head coaches, they are so risk averse that they actually make decisions that are risky. Like, and they're risky because it's lowering your chance to win, you know? And so, but in that situation, I would, I probably would have kicked uh, for some of the reasons you're mentioning, but um, yeah, I, and, and maybe, maybe he doesn't trust him. Uh, maybe he um, was just reading the pace of the game and he's like, listen, I, it's, I know how this game's going to go. I don't know, but I, I think I would have kicked there. Um, I do think they have time to figure it out, Matt, and, and find a way to get better at the end of, of those halves and ball games. And they better do it because they're probably going to play in a bunch of close games down the stretch. Yeah. And it did kill them. Uh, it, it's appropriate. We're talking about it right after the San Francisco game, because it killed them in that game. They were up 14 to seven. There was a pretty questionable holding call on Patrick Peterson. I'll say on San Francisco. Oh yeah. yeah. That was, I, I mean, you look back, that's a game changing call. That was a third down play. They tried some weird trick play. The Vikings had it stuffed out and they would have had to punt down 14, seven Vikings with the ball. So it's, it's a different game. I mean, and and that was, you don't want to blame the officials, but that was probably the worst officiated game we've seen this year from a Vikings perspective. I mean, that you had the pass interference, you had the Thielen catch, no catch that they, they, that was a catch. catch. I mean, uh, you you saw it clear as day on the replay. Uh, They had a great angle on it. I don't know what they what they were looking at, um, but but as far as uh, I mean, to your point earlier, Wabi. I mean, what Zimmer did to Justin Herbert in that game, what he did in the first half against Aaron Rodgers with the three safety look, he had him confused, yep. um, and, and and what he did to Herbert. I mean, Bynum coming uncovered on a blitz, Kendricks came on. Anytime you see a guy come uncovered on a blitz. I mean, you know, it was a pretty good scheme and, and yeah. Zim completely had Herbert fooled. Yep. Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. And look, like it, it can be to someone who doesn't um, pay a lot of attention to this, or maybe doesn't have a lot of, you know, deep knowledge of the game, just watches it casually. They can see a guy come uncovered and not, not think a lot of it. But like, if a guy comes uncovered, that that's, especially against quarterbacks who get it like Rogers, like, that's a big, like, that's, you, you tricked them. Like, guys shouldn't be uncovered in the NFL, you know? Guys can beat other guys, just flat out beat them and get a sack, but to be uncovered means that you fooled someone. So, yeah, you're, you're right about that. Um, no, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I just, you know, the Vikings, just to sort of dovetail off what you said, Marshall, and then my, my comment previously, I don't know what it is now. It's like every game except like one or two has been a one score game. Right. So um, this isn't changing like, and really this is how Zim has, has had it the whole time. I mean, I remember we had stats like this when the Vikings were playing at the Gophers stadium, like every game was close. They weren't winning a bunch of them at, in those years necessarily. Uh, but um this is how Zim constructs his teams. He does it on purpose. Of course, he'd love to win blowouts, you know, but um, 
And, and this is why the kicking game has been such a problem for the Vikings. Cause if you're constructed to, to play in these types of games and you're losing, you're leaking points in the kicking game, you know, it really is going to hurt you a lot more than it's going to hurt you. If you're sort of designing it to score 35 points a game and win high scoring games. So, yeah. Joseph has been pretty good since that uh, Arizona game, uh, which has been nice to see. Actually, got to meet him earlier this week. Um, oh, yeah? At a Hanukkah party. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> he was the guest of honor. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, – got to thank him for beating the Green Bay Packers, which is always yeah. good. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think he's been pretty good since the Arizona game. Uh, Jordan Berry has been very good. Uh, and the special teams has kind of turned around. It, that brings up a question. You you got to deal with uh, Ryan Ficken a lot when he was when he was there. He's been with the Vikings a long time. Uh, what did you see in him then, and uh, how impressed are you with him now? Yeah, um, I always saw in him just a really like um, a really hard worker. Um, you know, he he's a grinder. He's a film room rat. Uh, always in there and we would talk about you know when I would see him if we weren't talking about like our families or whatever you know uh, politics or whatever you know it, it was always something just so like random and intricate that we might have seen in in another game you know that we noted to to the other guy so like I think he really pays attention to details I think he works really hard and I think he appreciates where he is because he, um, you know, he didn't get any jobs because he's because of nepotism or because of favoritism. Like he, he really worked hard. And the proof of that is he's had all these coordinators change, you know, and he stuck on as the assistant, all these coordinators, special teams coordinators kept him as their assistant, you know? Um, and that, that was the case with Kevin Stefanski too. You know, he was always an, an offensive assistant. And um, when we would get these new offensive coordinators, Shermer and Norv and Musgrave, like they would all keep Kevin, you know, so that that's how, you know, a coach has got, got what it takes. Yeah. I was just about to bring up uh, Kevin, Kevin as well. Um, when you came on the last time you gave a great analogy about Kirk Cousins and, and the burning house and, yeah. and, not, and not being able to necessarily run into the burning house, but when, when everything was good, he was, he was doing everything he needed to do since then. He has run into the burning house a few times and, and won yeah. games for the Minnesota Vikings on, on several occasions this year and probably should have had a couple more, uh, if, not, if not for some breakdowns late. Uh, what, what have you seen in terms of the difference between what we've seen before from him and what we've seen this year as a really clutch player? Yep. I, I don't think... I don't think you can really have a major problem with cousins this season. I, I really don't think so. I mean, there's a couple of things here and there that make, might make you uh, scratch your head, you know, like I think he threw a pass backwards one time this year. I, I don't know. Like, but, and then I really, what was the overtime game where he, they, the they Carolina were, game after bars pick, right? Yes. Uh, the bar pick was, I think Baltimore. But yeah, he, yeah, it was Baltimore. Yeah. He won I, I, he won the uh, Carolina game on that dime to KJ Osborne. Oh yeah, to KJ. Yeah, yes. I was talking about the Baltimore game. I hated that series. I hated what yes. happened. Oh, yes. that it was terrible. Um yeah. 
So you got like little things like that, that you can maybe poke some holes in at Kirk, but, but big picture this year, I think if you're, if you're whining and complaining about Kirk, it's like, really, we've got like seven or eight other things here that we can talk about, you know? So um, thumbs up on Kirk this year, for sure. He is who he is, you know, and I like him. Um, you know, there were, <laughs> this is really unfair. Cause I'm going to talk about Tom Brady, who's the greatest of all time. So <laughs> I don't mean to compare Kirk and Tom, but we've had Tom Brady offenses with like Randy Moss and Wes Welker. And we've had, he's had Gronk and Edelman. Like he's had plenty of offensive firepower. Right. But we've seen a few Tom Brady offenses with some guys where it's like, yikes, they don't really have much, but they still won 12 games, right? So some quarterbacks have that in them where it doesn't really matter, like Aaron Rodgers. I don't think it really matters who's around them. The Packers are going to win 12 or 13 games. So I don't think Cousins is that. You know, I don't, I don't think he can elevate a bunch of mediocre guys to be Adam Thielens and Justin Jefferson's. Like, you got to give Cousins those guys for him to operate this way, but the Vikings have those guys and cousins is doing his job. So I really don't have any qualms at all about cousins and his performance this season. So Wabi, the, the magic question is, I mean, we, we know you laid out earlier that we need that breaking moment. That's going to tell us how the rest of the season is going to go, but what would need to happen in your opinion? The, the one or two things that, that are in the realm of possible for this team to go from being backing into the playoffs, you know, just, or just missing and, you know, just being a, a fringe, you know, all over the place team into one that could actually make a run in the playoffs. Yeah. To me, it would be, I'm not at, I'm not saying they got to be that 20. You remember the 2017 Vikings defense? I mean, like, that defense was so, so good. I can't even really adequately explain how, how hard it was for teams to move the ball and score on them that, that season. It was really impressive. So, like, if they, if they can – so I would say this year's defense is, like, 60% that good. You know, 65%. If, if they can be 80 or 85% of that, if, if they can step it up a little bit, then I think the Vi this Vikings team can make a run in the playoffs, you know, because I think this team can score basically on, on anyone. Like there's really not a defense in the NFL that I'm thinking about or looking at where I'm just like, yeah, the Vikings probably wouldn't move the ball against them. I think the Vikings would probably move the ball against anybody. To me, the concern would be, I don't think they want to get in games where it's like, 35 34 and you know 40 42 30 like I don't think they want to be in those games I think they need the defense to shorten the games um you know and again I'm not asking them to be at 17 18 points a game allowed that I think that I don't think this defense can get that high consistently but I think if they can get it and keep it at 20 and 21 like if you told me every team is going to score 22 points against the Vikings the rest of the way, I'd be like, they're going to make the playoffs and probably win a playoff game. So to me, it's that it's that part of the team stepping up a little bit and keeping that points per game down, uh, you know, at 20 or so. I, I don't even know what they're at right now. Uh, one of you two may know, or you could find it quickly. 
Um, you know, but I, I think if they can, if they can be 85% or 80% at the peak Zimmer Vikings defense, then I think this team has a chance to make a little noise. And, and I don't want to say like they can make a run and go to the Super Bowl like they could anyone, you know, once you're in anyone can do that. I, you know, I think there are a couple of teams in the NFC that just are going to be too good for the Vikings, but I think they could win a playoff game or two if, if that defense got up to that level. Yeah, and to and does, go ahead. I was just saying, does does Dalvin Tomlinson coming back, or you know, like, or what? Are the is it injuries that really yeah could help you it's know injuries. help elevate it, or what is yeah. what needs to change? Yeah, no, I think it's health. I think they got to get those guys back. I mean, they were playing with a shell of their defense last year. All those guys got hurt, you know, and they're dealing with a little bit of it right now, right? Especially up front. I mean, Daniil being gone maybe makes it impossible for them to be eighty five percent as good. You know, I I don't know. But to me, it's like, like the offense isn't perfect and I'm not giving up a pass, but really to me, the cons- like the defense can be more consistent. And if it is, I think that would go the furthest in terms of helping this team be significant down the stretch. And, and, and to that point, and this will be our, our last question here uh, for, for Wabi, um, you know, the, like to your point, they can beat anybody in the they just beat the Green Bay Packers are the toughest out in the NFC. And and they just went toe-to-toe with them. Um, Arizona, they went toe-to-toe with. Dallas, they went toe-to-toe with. Like they shouldn't be afraid of anybody in the NFC. It's just a matter of they might have to beat three of those teams in a row to get to the Super True. Bowl. So that that's True. tough. But I, I think based like just what you were saying. You get Michael Pierce and Dalvin Tomlinson back this week, it looks like, um, which, is, which is huge because Watts has been playing pretty well. And then you can rotate him a little more. James Lynch has been playing pretty well. I think the defensive end spot, they're a little more uh, in a bind. You know, Wanham's stepped up his game a little bit. Willikus, we saw something from before he went on the COVID list. So that, that defensive line with Pierce and Tomlinson coming back, if they can stop the run, then you can get into Zimmer's intricate packages on third down, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, I would agree with everything there. And as cliche as it is, stopping the run is important because that is exactly what allows the Vikings to get into the, the true Zimmer playbook, you know, where you can dial stuff up And the reason you can dial stuff up like that is because as teams get like one dimensional, it's not just, oh yeah, we know they're going to pass. They're one dimensional. We know they're going to pass on third and whatever, third and medium, third and long. These, these teams, they study and they, it's not just, they know they're going to pass. It's, they know what types of pass plays they're going to call. And they know what the team's protections are on third downs. Like it's more than just knowing if they're going to run or pass. That's a 50, 50 proposition. Anyone can guess that it's more like, you got to know more than if they're going to run or pass, you know, you got to know like what they're going to run against cover three and what they're going to run against, you know, a certain blitz that you have, and you got to know what their protections are. And when you get teams one dimensional in the third and mediums and third and longs, there's only so many protections they can have. And there's only so many passing plays they can call. So you're right. They gotta, they gotta be stout and good against the run. Um, you know, and the other problem Marshall to your point is they can beat anyone in the NFC, but can they beat those elite teams three times in a row on the road? Right. Yeah. 
They've played better on the road than at home for most of the year, but playoff road games, that's a different matter, as you know. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, that sheds some light and I think gives us some uh, some optimism uh, going forward, Bob. So uh, well, that's so good. Thank you know, you very much. I, I know I tend to be a little bit optimistic on, on the Vikings. That's just how I'm wired. Uh, but I don't think it's misplaced right now, guys. Like I think there's plenty of holes we can shoot in this team, but um, if, if they didn't have what it took and they were a joke, they would have fallen off by now, you know, so they're fighting this team fights and you're right. They are pretty tough on the road this year. And I think that's a good sign for them as well. So fun to talk about them. I always love coming on with you guys. So hopefully we can do it again. Thank you, sir. To answer your question, it was 20. It's, they're giving up 25.1 points per game right now. Too high. It's got to be at like 20 or 21. Yeah. And, no, and no. I'm not saying they can get that down. Like their season can be 20. That it's too late for that. I'm saying going forward, clean slate, yeah. make it 21. I think they got a shot. No question. We'll do it. We'll come back. We'll do a playoff edition. We'll, okay. We'll stay I mean, optimistic. All right. That's Mike Wapshaw. We'll talk to you guys uh, next time. See you, Wabi. Thank you again to Wabi. That was uh, an excellent conversation. And Matt, uh, we don't need to do much more after that. I mean, that was a thorough, thorough uh, recap of kind of where the Vikings are and uh, what we can expect going forward. That was outstanding. Yeah. When you have Wabi on, uh, you know you're going to have the Vikings covered. Uh, He just has so much good. Uh, intel and experience from his time with the organization and just really gets uh, what's going on with the team. So great conversation. Yeah. And you can check him out again, all his work at Wobby on Twitter, W O B B Y at Wobby on Twitter uh, to catch all of his work. And we thank him again for joining us there. It was a busy week in sports. It was not just the Minnesota Vikings. How about uh, both of our college football teams hiring new coaches, uh, USC and Notre Dame. Uh, We had uh, the Minnesota Timberwolves with a crazy double OT win in Philly. Um, We had the Minnesota Twins signing Byron Buxton to a seven-year deal for $100 million. And I guess, uh, Matt, let's start on there because we may not be able to talk much baseball for quite some time due to the fact that they are now uh, in a lockout um, as, of, as of this week. Uh, what did you think about the, the Buxton deal? And then I'll give my thoughts. I think it had to be done. I, I think that when you s- spend as money as they did on Josh Donaldson uh, and with all the young guys they have that are super talented uh with some of the other moving it's a risk but i i think you just he's such a clear um priority and 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 important part of this team defensively offensively uh leadership in the clubhouse energy that i just think they they had to make this move a risk it sounds like the structure uh, of the deal is really going to be incentive focused and tied to the number of games he plays, which I think everyone involved knew it had to be the case. Um, but I think if you let such a talented player like him, someone who could be who's at the top of his game, a top five offensive player in the American League, 
Uh, you just can't let him walk away. You would have had to trade him uh, if you weren't going to resign him. Uh, and so I think this is what they had to do. And kudos to the organization for making it happen. Well, what say you? Well, I, I guess mine is a little more complicated. I think in, in isolation, it's a fine move. I, I mean, I understand why you want to keep him. There's no question about it when he's on the field, how talented he is. Now, I, I will say, I think that gets a bit overplayed because he's really only done it for about a year total um, at, at really the top elite level that we've seen. And, and the beginning of the season last year, I mean, the first month, he was the best player in baseball. He got American League Player of the Month over Mike Trout. So no question, no question uh, the talent is there. My thing would be, and the reason I say in isolation it's a good move, is because I'm not really sure what the direction of this team is. Um, and, and I'll explain. I mean, I think when you trade Jose Barrios, um, who was going to be, he was signed through this 2022 season, and then he was going to become a free agent, no question wanted to cash in. But the Toronto Blue Jays signed him before he hit free agency, seven years uh, I think it was like 115 million somewhere in there. He, he was he was gonna make maybe more than that. He's gonna make like 18 to 20 a year, um, and it was a very good deal for him, but a good deal for the Toronto Blue Jays as well. And, and I'll say this: if you if you're going to trade him, then what's the direction in the sense like how are you going to possibly put together a competitive starting pitching staff? And now they didn't know Kenta Maeda was going to get hurt, but he's likely out for the year due to Tommy John. So their starters right now are Bailey Ober and Joe Ryan, two promising rookies last year. Bailey, I know, I know, well, I covered him in Fort Myers, good pitcher, um, has had some injury concerns. He's six, nine, but he's got, he's got really funky stuff in the sense of guys just, he, he just misses bats. Um, and his velocity is now ticked up to, you know, 93, 94, whereas before it was in the upper eighties, and he has such great extension, meaning he releases it so close to home plate that it appears even faster than it is because of his, his great height and that extension. So he's good. Joe Ryan, I saw in the minor leagues when he was in the Tampa Bay Rays organization, he's a good pitcher. But if those two are at the top of your rotation, it's not going to be a contending team. They're just too young and inexperienced. They, they both have good futures, but you want them at the bottom of your rotation, not at the top. So to me, like, how are they going to get three more pitchers on this team? They got Dylan Bundy. I guess they, they just signed him. Um, he was good two years ago in the COVID year. Uh, last yeah. year he had an ERA over six. So, you, you know, kind of a typical Twins signing in the sense, like, they're trying to uh, get a get a low value or a, a low risk, high reward guy. Um, he's not going to be your top of the rotation guy. So. How are they going to put together a pitching staff? How are they going to put together a starting pitching staff? How are they going to put together a bullpen that can compete with the Chicago White Sox and the American League Central when they're going out and signing guys like Kendall Graveman to their bullpen, uh, who they locked up to a three-year, like $24 million deal, I believe. So that, that to me is my, my question. Like what, it's great to have Buxton around if he's on the field, which is a big if. Um, if he plays hundred plus games a year, it's probably a good deal. That's a big if he's done that like once. So 
And is he going to get more durable as he gets older? So that's my thing. I think what I would say, if I asked the twins for an office, like, hey, what's your plan? And they had to tell me, like, honestly, what it was. I think they would say they're very confident in their own pitching development. And that that deserves some merit. I mean, they they we'll, we'll see. I mean, I think COVID kind of backed that up a little bit. I remember when Lavelle Neal III was on, we talked about how COVID kind of delayed whether we really know how good Derek Falvey and Thad Levine are at developing, at developing pitching in the minor leagues. But I think you have some guys in those two I mentioned, Ober and, and Ryan. You have Jordan Belazovic. You have Josh Winder. You have Johan Duran. So you've got, you've got some guys um, and even some guys at the lower levels who you're feeling good about. My thing is, though, you need some proven quantities if you're going to actually compete. You need a proven commodity in the one and two spots in the rotation because you can't go with five young guys. I totally agree with you, and I do question what their roadmap and their philosophy is right now. It does seem a little rudderless. Um, you know, I, where I disagree with you is on Barrios. I think that the reality was is that they knew they weren't going to be able to re-sign him uh, or if the amount of money they'd have to pay him was not going to be worth it for someone who is a borderline number two starter. He is not going to be the number one guy. I know he's been the number one guy for the Twins. But the reality, and, and, and maybe he's got number one stuff, but he's not been able to unlock it with the Twins, and he's not produced results to be the number one guy. So, you know, I do think that they could still go out via trade or signing and, and, and pay the money, the money necessary to get a number one guy to lead that rotation. But I think trading Barrios wasn't necessary to happen because uh, – he just was never going to be that guy and it wasn't going to be worth investing the money in him for him to be a soft number two. I, I agree in part and disagree in part. Uh, I think he, he would have been, he was not going to be a number one guy. You're correct about that. Um, I think some of the media perception of him as a number one guy was misguided. Um, he, he was never that guy with the Minnesota twins, but here's, here's my, here, here's, here's, the big caveat to that he got a he got seven years 131 million with the blue jays that's not number one starter money it's not um it may seem like a lot of money and it is it's more than buxton got but it's not number one starter money so here's here's my thing and see if you agree with this they are not going to sign an ace pitcher in free agency they're just not they're going to get outbid for that guy as they did with Zach Wheeler a couple of years ago. And even he at the time wasn't really considered an ace. They bid like a hundred million. They got outbid by 118 million and his wife was from Philly. So he was going to Philly. They're, so they're not going to sign a number one guy. As for a number two guy, if you're not going to sign a 27 year old Jose Barrios, who you, uh, sure. Does he have fault? Does he have flaws? Sure. Yes, he does. But he's 27. He's never missed a start. He's incredibly durable. He works his ass off. You know who he is. You developed him. If you're not going to sign that guy as a number two starter, 
then who are you going to sign? That's my point. Then, then I don't think they're going to sign any frontline starter, number one or two, or borderline three, as you call Barrios, whatever you want to call him, whether he's a two, borderline three, whatever. They are not going to spend the money. And I think it's more, it's not necessarily the amount of money, in fairness. I think it's more the length. And this front office has just this philosophy. They're not going to extend a pitcher beyond five years. And we've seen it. We, they, they gave money to Josh Donaldson. They probably signed Josh Donaldson for four years to get him for the first two or three, and they tacked on an extra year in order to make sure they could get him. They were willing to do that with Josh Donaldson. They're not willing to do that with starting pitchers. And, and to, to some extent, I don't blame them, but occasionally you have to – I understand having a philosophy. Sometimes you need to go outside of that when the situation is unique. And I do think with Barrios it was because of the age – 27 and the durability never missing a start so i think if you don't sign him who are you going to sign it's going to be the trade market and your own development in my opinion i i i totally agree with you on that i do think they're unlikely to get an ace uh via free agency that's just not what they've done the wheeler example is a a perfect example as you mentioned it is going to be via trade it is going to be developing the next round of top talent, hoping one of those develops into the ace. Those are going to be the two options. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, they've been able to make it work some in the past and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and I, I think you're right that at some point they do have to put their money out there, um, you know, and have the length of, of the contract in order to get one of these guys. But that's just not the philosophy and not what they're going to do. And I, I wish they would sometimes do it. They got to do it with the right people. Um, but you're right that that is a fair criticism, um, you know, and an incomplete part of this. But switching gears from one exciting young star, to, uh, regardless of whether it was the right signing or not, to another, how about Ants and the Timberwolves? Awesome. Uh, I, w- I was at the Miami Heat game. Um, in fact, I had seats right near the Heat bench where it happened to be the same basket where Ant had that ridiculous dunk that ridiculously got called off uh, by, the, by the official as an offensive foul. That and, official and can should I just... never officiate in ever another game. So, Marshall, as a side note, you know this. Uh, we played basketball together. I am. I was known as the expert charge taker. Uh, that was my my go to move. That was one hundred and fifty percent not a charge. He wasn't set. Uh, you know, he got robbed on that play. But exactly, continue. the guy slid underneath him after Ant had jumped, and just from the the distance he jumped, the emphaticness of the dunk. You you can't call an offensive foul there, and the game's in Minnesota. Ant had a great quote afterwards about it. Like, you just can't call an offensive foul in that situation. But he's awesome. I mean, uh, at, at 20 years old, what he's shown is unbelievable. Uh, he's taking a lot more threes this year. I would like to see a little bit fewer threes. I understand you you have to do that in today's game. But his, his percentage from out there isn't great. You can't stop him when you – you guys can't stop him when he's going downhill. So I'd like to see him go even more downhill. Um, but – the three-point the three-point shot is now a big part of his game. His defense is getting better. The, just the excitement, the the energy that he brought on that night, 
He was firing guys up. He was getting in Jimmy Butler's face, which is kind of contrary to the criticism that Jimmy Butler had for Cat and Wiggins when he was here, that they were a little soft. They weren't soft that night. They stood up to Jimmy Butler. Butler had a, a very pedestrian game, especially second half. And Ant got right in his face when Butler took the ball from him and, and, uh, and pushed him. And, and Ant got right back in Butler's face. That was good to see um, as a 20-year-old. Uh, the maturity already from him is outstanding. But in that game and in the Philly game, the double OT win, D'Angelo Russell was outstanding. He was really good in that game, uh, Miami, in the fourth quarter. I think he had 10 in the fourth quarter. And against Philly on the road, when Cat had fouled out and Ant was having kind of a so-so game, D'Lo had 10 before the fourth quarter, and he ended a double OT game with 35. And he was making clutch shot after clutch shot from beyond the arc, mostly. And it was awesome to see. When he is playing on top of his game, they really do have a, a, a legit big three. And it's, it's cool to see it coming together. And I think the defense really is the story. Chris Finch has turned this into a defensive team with Patrick Beverly, who's out right now, but should be back fairly soon. Uh, Beverly's changed the tone. Um, and then also, um, also Jared Vanderbilt has been a freakish rebounder for them and defender. Um, so I, I think it's just a more fun team to watch. They're playing defense. They've got, uh, they've got exciting young talent and, uh, they certainly could be a playoff team this year. No question about it. This is the most excitement we've seen around the team uh, since KG was there. And I think that is entirely to do with Ant. Um, he's a different kind of superstar uh, with all due respect to, to Towns, who obviously is a great player, um, but he brings the energy and the excitement around this team and the attitude, and they just feel like a different team. Uh, with him as the leader and Towns as the number two role player um, and obviously presence, um, you know, on the inside. I, I mean, D'Lo is definitely playing better, as you talked about, and that is helping the team. We got to have Corzo back uh, at some point to really give us some in-depth analysis of the Timberwolves because, I, you know, he, he's been tough on D'Lo, and I'd be curious to see uh, – uh, little bit uh on him and and whether we still uh uh need to to make a move uh but i mean you the name you mentioned i think is so important even with him out is patrick beverly that wherever that guy goes his teams win um and i think that they have been missing that um in veteran leadership and an understanding of what winning basketball is in the nba um, and so the fact that they're playing defense, the fact that they're not getting out rebound uh, so badly like they used to, and the fact that they have um, that winning leadership at the top and, and a little bit different culture, as well as uh, the superstar that gets everyone excited, that can carry you in a game. Um, I do agree that they can and should be able to make uh, the playoffs. And the last thing I would just say is I, I feel inspired for them by the fact that previous Timberwolves team when they went on that losing streak early on would have folded and kept losing and just let the season get out of control but they found a way to stop the bleeding go on a run 
and 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 get back to 500 and get back in the conversation and that um i think speaks to a different team a different culture a different attitude uh and a, a different season outlook yeah that's an excellent point uh it's a lot of people you know out there were were ragging on him saying you know here we go again and uh credit to chris finch you gotta love chris finch he's a he's a quote machine um, he tells it like it is and seems like a down-to-earth dude um really even keeled throughout the game and uh yeah love it love what they're doing right now they're in playoff position and uh hopefully they can get there because even even an early playoff exit playoff experience is good for young teams for sure we, we need this team to start making the playoffs on a routine basis and uh this this would be an excellent start and i think that barring barring injury they could get there um Last topic, and we, we normally don't venture much outside of, of Minnesota sports, but we have to this week because both of our college football teams got new head coaches. And uh, I'll start uh, with, with uh, the man at USC, Lincoln Riley. When I got that news, I mean, I did not think that was even possible. Um, I, I mean, people were throwing out all kinds of, of different names. Um, Every, everything from Matt Campbell to James Franklin to, uh, I mean, the Baylor coach, you had the BYU coach. I mean, even, even, uh, even the Oregon coach who I'm blanking on right now. Mario uh, Cristobal. Yeah, Cristobal, who's going to get ready to be dominated. But uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> Lincoln Riley was not even – on the radar, not because we didn't want him. I mean, everybody would have taken him, but uh, they didn't think he was going to come from Oklahoma. And you have to give credit to USC Athletic Director Mike Bone, the president, uh, Carol Foltz. Both both uh, have been hired recently and over the past few years um, in each of their cases. And uh, Lincoln Riley said in his, in his press conference, one thing that it sold him on USC was just the alignment of president, athletic director, the whole administration, really speaking with one voice. I mean, to pry a guy from Oklahoma when he's had two Heisman Trophy winners, two number one draft picks, three college football playoff appearances, he's never lost more than two games in a year, and he's 55 and 10. I mean, and, and he's not even 40 years old. The dude is an absolute beast. And and what I came away from it, uh, what, what my big takeaway was this, and I forgot who said it, so I apologize for not attributing this, but Somebody said, Lincoln Riley goes to the SEC, whether it goes to LSU or goes with Oklahoma to the SEC in a couple of years, that changes the SEC. Lincoln Riley goes to USC, though, and that changes college football. And the reason is because of the LA recruiting. And teams like Oregon, like Alabama, their quarterbacks from LA, uh, like Oklahoma, like Clemson, I mean, all these top programs, Georgia, they were poaching players from LA. Now they'll continue. Notre to Dame. Out. You know, Notre Dame did it a little bit as well. They, they were poaching guys from LA right from our own backyard. And that will continue to happen to some degree. There's too many good players, but when you have Lincoln Riley there, if he can lock down LA, that takes away in large part, a big recruiting base from the rest of the entire country. And we saw it when Pete Carroll was there. He dominated LA recruiting. He, he went to other places, picked off guys here and there, but he dominated LA and he dominated college football. 
uh, for, for about a decade. And it's going to be very interesting to see if Lincoln Riley can try to replicate some of that. He's off to a great start already, getting several five stars to flip, some from Oklahoma, some, uh, some elsewhere. But uh, it's, it's finally, as a USC alum, an exciting time to be following USC football again. He's just breathed uh, a lot of life into that entire campus, which is awesome. I, uh, as an Irish fan, I hate the hire with a fiery passion. A good sign. Uh, it's a good sign. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, kudos to your team. Uh, I hate to admit it. We've talked about this before, but uh, college football is better when the top programs, uh, the historic programs are playing well. And in particular, I think of USC. I think of Alabama. I think of Michigan. I think of Notre Dame. I think of Ohio State. You know, these, when these programs are clicking, um, you know, and, and you get some of those classic matchups, the, the sport is much better. And so USC being down uh, the last uh, few years, you know, hasn't been good. It's made the Pac-12 irrelevant. So I think he is going to be a great hire there. Um, switching to my team uh, who uh, suffered the uh, sudden betrayal uh, mid-season while still eligible to be chosen playoff by uh, bonehead Brian Kelly uh, <laughs> bitter whatsoever uh, you know quite shocking I mean the idea that the coaches of Oklahoma and Notre Dame would leave to go to other colleges um, is shocking and you know uh, only one coach Marshall has won 11 games and switched to from one college to go to another college the next year you know they didn't you know others have won 11 games and gone to the nfl others have won 11 games and you know been fired or resigned out of you know because of controversies that's happened twice that they left to go to another program and brian kelly's now done it twice he's the and the season's not even wait you said 11 games they could even have more wins potentially if they make the playoff or, or even if they don't, I know. unbelievable. It's, that was it's un been. Lincoln Riley's team, at least was out of the race. Brian Kelly, left. Brian Kelly left with them still in playoff contention. Unbelievable. I, I'm not going to fault a guy for going somewhere. If he thinks he can win more, I'm not going to fault a guy for uh, taking more money. It, it is a business. We all need to acknowledge that now. And I'm glad the players are in a position where it's equally or it's more of a business for them as well with the transfer um, portal and NIL. But uh, it was the timing of it that was horrible. But I do want to talk about the uh, soon to be announced new coach. And I think it will make it a great rivalry going forward. And Marcus Freeman, uh, if you haven't, the listeners haven't gone and looked up Marcus Freeman, looked at some of the videos out there he's with him about his approach to recruiting. He talks about how he sells Notre Dame, you know, by looking at different rappers and, and comparing Notre Dame as the Jay-Z of rappers, you know, because there are some players who that's going to resonate with them more than the golden dome in history of, of the school. You know, he, he gets fired up. He's the type of guy you want to run through a brick wall for. Um, he's, you know, a great defensive coach, uh, he's worked under some of the best leaders. Uh, he's a phenomenal recruiter. And, you know, I, I do think that it is very important to acknowledge that none of the top programs in a sport that is 
you know, predominantly, uh, maybe majority, um, I, I don't know the exact stats, um, you know, African-American players, that none of the top programs have a black head coach. Uh, James Franklin, I think, uh, you know, at Penn State might be one exception. But, um, the, you know, the so Marcus Freeman filling that void is, I think, very important. Um, and I think he just it's going to be exciting to see these two young coaches uh, appeal to uh, younger recruits as the next up and coming generation uh, go toe to toe on the field and really uh, connect with these players um, in a way that a lot of the old school successful coaches uh, just can't. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, I think uh, both of us have reason to be to be excited. Um, and uh, it should be a great rivalry uh, moving forward, hopefully again, because uh, again, college football is better when both USC and Notre Dame are good. People may not like to hear that outside of this show, but it is true. Um, and when that rivalry is going, it's, it's awesome as well. Um, we, we've, I've been to South Bend, you've been to LA. Um, it, when, when both teams are good, and that South that game in South Bend's in late October, great weather, crisp fall air. It's usually at night. Um, it's awesome. And the one in LA usually is over Thanksgiving weekend and could be, could be, you know, for a chance to go to a Pac-12 championship game or national or, or the college football playoff in your guys' case um, should be really, really fun. So uh, the greatest cross-sectional rivalry in, in college football, as they say. And, uh, Hopefully, hopefully it's coming back soon. So um, that'll do it. That'll do it. We'll uh, keep it Minnesota from here on out. Uh, that'll do it for this week's show, though. Big game for the Minnesota Vikings. We didn't even talk about the Detroit Lions, but the Detroit Lions have actually kept a lot of games close. Um, I've said all year that's going to be a tough game because it's their fourth road game in five weeks. Uh, they're going a couple West Coast games lately. Now they're going to the Eastern time zone, even though it's in the Midwest. So We'll see Detroit's battled. Uh, I don't think it'll be necessarily a blowout. I hope it is. Could be, but uh, it could be another close one. I think the Vikings win. Hopefully uh, then we can talk about Pittsburgh Steelers on a short week next week uh, on a Thursday night prime time at, uh, at U.S. Bank Stadium. That'll do it for this week. For Matt Gallivan, I'm Marshall Kellner. Talk to you guys next time. See ya.